0: Please be seated. As Ann mentioned, I want to thank all of those volunteers that worked so hard yesterday and that were here the week leading up to uh, set everything up, especially for Richard, who played Jesus, as Ann mentioned. Uh, he had, like, CGI on his face. I mean, he lost 20 years uh, when he was here. We're grateful for all of the people that worked so hard but uh, especially for Ashley Crisp, who organized the whole thing and put in tons of work, we're grateful for her. I got to be honest, I, I work with the best staff in, in the country. Um, I would put Highland staff against any other church, and we would beat them down mercilessly, <laughs> which isn't what you'd expect from a church staff, but that's just what you get at Highland. Um, I am also, a second thing I want to tell you about, I, my name is Shane Hughes, I'm one of the ministers here, and I am heading next week into study break, which is a generous time, if you knew new here at Highland, it's a generous time that our elders have offered uh, to give uh, me a chance to catch up on books that I want to read, but haven't had the time, and to get away to do, to pray, get time to think on things that, Aren't just coming at you at 100 miles an hour, uh, and I will spend part of the month of July um, thinking about what does this congregation need to hear from God in 2024. What do we need to? Where do we need to grow, and what are some of the other ways that God is leading us into the future? And so, part of this will not only be reading and praying; uh, it'll also just be, frankly, listening. Uh, to what God is doing. So I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for you as a church that allows me the chance to step back. I'm also grateful that, I mean, not only do we have the best staff, we have like probably 10 of the best preachers that like sit in the pew most of the time. Um, and you are going to hear some great uh, preaching in in the next five weeks. Uh, I am thrilled about what you're gonna hear. I, I wish I was the best preacher in Abilene. I'm not even sure I'm the best preacher at Highland. Um, I'd be lucky to be in the top five here, I think. And so uh, there's going to be a lot in store as we continue our series uh, on the parables in July. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We're grateful to be gathered together in this place at this time. We are grateful for the work that you've set before us. Uh, the work that we pursue with joy. Whether it's serving the least of these with T-Mom, whether it's serving our children as they learn about who Jesus is, whether it's learning to love and care for one another more deeply. So Father, now shape us, inform us, mold us into the image of your son Jesus. Burn so brightly in our eyes that you are all we see. Everything else is just shadow within shadow. And to that end, Father, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. All right, so I want us to talk about these two little parables. And we deceptively hid how awkward, how unsettling these two parables actually are because we put them in the mouths of a child. But I want you to think for a minute because I want to like these parables. I want to appreciate these parables. I've tried to like them all week, but there are just too many problems that keep surfacing up in these two stories that Jesus tells. And so in order to get there, I want to explain why you should never win the lottery. why se- I mean why? Se- what we would call in my Arkansas friends, why relations is more like the kingdom than you think. I tried to like these stories, but I can't. The story of the pearl is, it, it really feels very personal, right? And we already have this personal concept of salvation in the West. Uh, It's it's about this merchant that seeks to find the thing that they are looking for, and when they find it, they sell everything else to get it. But it's only one person. And that doesn't strike me as very kingdom-oriented, because the kingdom is not about me in particular. The kingdom is about God's work in this world. The other thing that kind of bothers me about this text is this is a person that already has means. They are a merchant. They are wealthy. And this might lead us to believe that the kingdom is some sort of black tie, $15,000 a plate gathering, where you already have to have in order to get more. And then there's this other unsettling story about the treasure in the field. This character probably isn't rich. They're probably a day laborer that's there doing some work on the field. And this character, this worker is exploitive. They're self-seeking. And when they find the treasure that's buried there, they go and buy the field because they have some insider trading. They're being dishonest in some way. And I think this gives us a glimpse about how to, how to, how to hold parables in our minds and our hearts. And I, I want us to think about what we've been doing the last three weeks and what we've learned. We've learned that the kingdom of God isn't our field when we talked about the weeds and the wheat. And we don't have the wisdom to discern who is in and who is out as we go along. So we'll leave that to God. And we've learned that the kingdom isn't about our growth. It's not something that we can muster by hard work and effort and diligence. It's something that God plans and God carries out. It's like the mustard seed, this small thing that God can make mighty. And I don't like these stories And if you had each one alone, if Matthew had only given us one of these stories, I think there's a real potential that we would misread what Jesus is trying to say. But the fact that Matthew puts both of them side by side, each one tells the other. A parable is an extended metaphor. And Matthew puts them side by side so that they can interpret each other. Really where we've been for the past Three or four weeks, and where we're going one more week is, is we're focusing on that part of the pathway called worship, to know the true character of God. Because what Matthew wants to know in Matthew chapter 13 is what God's kingdom is like, because it's one of the clearest ways that we can understand who God is. But in about two weeks, the story, the perspective, is going to shift. And it's no longer so much about what. God is, who God is, as much as what God expects of us. And so these parables have been seeking to discover the mystery and the surprise. But we're going to come up against some parables that are going to tell us who we should be. All right, so a little historical background on these two parables uh, before we jump into the connections about lottery and relations. So there's, there's a historical background you need to understand about why this guy is digging in a field and finds treasure. It's because there were no banks in the first century. There was very little investment opportunity in the ancient Near East. And so if you had money or you had something that was valuable, the only place you could really keep it was to hide it in your house. And if you hid it in your house and you wanted to go out, you didn't have doors or steel locks or those kind of things, and so you either had to hire people to protect it, to watch it for you, which is expensive, or you had to go hide it somewhere else. And so people would bury treasure, their valuables, their money, in fields. It might be ten paces off the big oak tree, headed east And inevitably what would happen in the ancient Near East is that somebody would die before telling someone else where their treasure was or someone would be conscripted or taken away to war. They would die without being able to communicate it. They would be be enslaved and and, and taken to a foreign land and wouldn't have somebody else. And so there are events and occasions, in fact there's been archaeological finds of, of jars full of coins that were just buried in a field. And so it's very possible, in fact, it might be that story that gets told among the poor in Palestine about someone who was working on a field and was digging along and found money. And for that day laborer who worked for their food for that day and lived as a subsistence existence, that was more money than they'd ever seen in their entire life. The other thing you need to know about this story is that pearls in the first century and in the ancient Near East are incredibly valuable. They're listed alongside gold and silver. The story is told about Cleopatra, who had a pearl that was said to be worth 200, or 25 million drachmas, which is a day's wage. 25 million. So, if you convert that into minimum wage in our economy, that's a a pearl that's worth $1.5 billion. It's the kind of value that no one possesses. And so, holding that pearl is incredibly valuable. And so, what does the merchant do when he encounters a pearl of great value? He sells everything. They sell everything. All of their Pokemon cards and all of their Beanie Baby collections and he sells their house and he sells their car and every other pearl and precious gem that they own. He sells their family heirlooms, the chest that belonged to his grandmother and the pendant that his mother wore. He goes out into his field, he digs up all of his treasure and he sells it and the merchant does it with joy. And Jesus puts these two stories side by side to tell us what the kingdom is like. Because becoming a Christian, entering into God's kingdom is, a, is not a matter of degree, but it's a matter of, of kind. Now I want to unpack what that sentence is. Becoming a Christian is not a matter of degree, but a matter of kind. Kind. When you enter into God's kingdom, it's not that you need to be 10% happier or 10% more joyful or 10% less cruel or 10% kinder. It's not that you need to become a slightly better version of the person you already are. That's a matter of degree. When you become part of God's kingdom, you become a different person. Do you know what the difference is, speaking of big sums of money. The difference is between a million dollars and a billion dollars. It's almost a billion dollars. That's the difference, right? It's a rounding error. That's the difference. It's the same thing as the difference of having a thousand dollars in your bank account and having a million dollars. The difference is almost a million dollars. But there are things that even a billion dollars can't buy. There are things that a million dollars can't buy. Money will not bring you joy. And this is why you should never win the lottery. You should never even play. First of all, the chances of winning are so small that you will never win. You are wasting your money. You're throwing it away. You might as well burn it because the heat you generate is worth more to you than the money you put in the paper. The, the, but the, actually, if you were to win... Lottery winners are more likely to be killed than non-lottery winners. They're more likely to have their children and their spouses leave them than non-lottery winners. They're more likely to be robbed and scammed than non-lottery winners. They're more likely to have the people close to them, their loved ones, die from drug overdose than non-lottery winners. It is simply not worth it. But I think everybody has that fantasy As they drive along Clack Street and they see the two numbers, the Powerball and the Mega Millions, and you think to yourself, what would I do with 567 million dollars? But there are things that 567 million dollars can't buy. There are places and there are people that are incredibly powerful. You can ascend to those those positions where you have a lot of influence, able to shift and change culture, but there are things that power cannot force. Just ask King Charles, king of Britain, about his second son and the failure of the relationship there. The role and the power and money itself became a block in being in relationship. It's like, it's like relations. The language, I'm going to say this sentence and I want to unpack it in a second. The language of the marketplace is out of place in the bedroom. Another way to think of that is is physical intimacy is a covenant commodity, it's not a transactional commodity. You can't talk about relations in the same way that you talk about buying and selling a used car. That language doesn't fit in that category because it's not a matter of degree, it's a matter of kind. And anyone that has experienced intimacy in a covenant relationship knows it is by far greater than intimacy that comes out of a transactional commodity. And do not be confused. You can turn your marriage into a transactional economy. You can escape the covenant that God created. You can move out of that space. But no one that has ever lived in a covenant community where there is love and trust and joy and security ever wants to step out of that. And that's kind of like what it is to become a Christian. It's kind of like relations. Because coming a Christian is a matter of degree, but not of, it's not a matter of degree, but a matter of, of kind. There's also something about uh, being a part of the kingdom that creates holy ground. Have you ever been on holy ground? That sacred space, that place that feels more like home than the home you left. It's a, these stories, these parables, it's a matter of leaving everything you know and finding a new place that is more like home than the home you left. Jesus says that the worker sells everything he has with joy. And I want to ask the question, is it the seeking or the having that you desire the most? Would you rather be the dog that chases the car or the cat that catches the mouse? Sometimes it's the seeking that you really wanted, because when you get it, it's not the same. Sometimes it's the having. But here's the thing. With God as with all covenant relationships, you get both. You get a lifetime of seeking and discovering and searching, but also a lifetime of finding and possessing and feeling secure. The reality is you get both. And there's something here about detachment there's something here that the, the day laborer and the merchant both understand innately is that they have to give up everything else to buy the field, to possess the treasure, to buy the pearl, to possess the pearl. It's, 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 There's something here about detachment. It's about letting go of all the things that create the illusion of power or the illusion of worth or the illusion of security. And the reality is, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, I think Jesus is trying to say, you have to be willing to give it all up and let it all go. When I worked in in California, I'd have friends that moved to California for jobs from other places. They lived in the Midwest or they lived in the South. Some of them came from ACU because they found jobs in the tech industry and and the place I was working. And sometimes they would come with a spouse. And at my church, we were kind of this this place that would attract those people, these transplants from other places. And we would welcome them, and it was kind of a ministry for us of helping people graft in and and feel apart quickly, helping them to become a part of a, a community that mattered to them. But you could always tell. You could always tell the people that had one foot there in California and the other foot back home. There was this hesitancy to to be fully all in. There was this kind of willingness unwillingness to to commit everything. And in in the back of their mind, you could see, man, if we if we have a kid, we're going back home. If I if I make enough money, I'm I'm gonna buy a house in a cheap place like Austin. Like that's what I'm gonna do. And that's why it's so much easier to set your heart in Abilene. It's so much easier to abandon all hope, ye who enter, because <laughs> Abilene is the perfect place <laughs> to do those things. But I think what Jesus is trying to say is that you can't get to the kingdom unless you are willing to give up everything. It doesn't mean you have to give up everything. I think it means that you have to have a hold in your heart and in your mind and your soul, a spirit of detachment that says, everything that I am is no longer me, but Christ who lives in me. You can't marry a person and then keep going back and pine over some X's Insta field, Instagram feed. Like, visiting their Facebook to see what's going on is not healthy. It means that you have one foot in the past and one foot in the present. And what it means is you're not in covenant. And I think what God calls you to is the willingness to abandon it all. And the problem with that is that most of us are asking too little for too faint a cost. Because all we come to God with is we come to God with, 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 with our suffering and we ask for, our, ask for relief. And I'm not trying to deny that suffering is not a significant part of your life, but it's just one small part of your life. And if all you come to God is to offer this much but no more, and I'm just gonna keep one foot back over here while I, while I kind of reach tentatively, I'm gonna keep my weight where I wanna stay, but I wanna enter into relationship with you, all you get is what God can offer you. It's low stakes, it's low risk, it's low reward. We, call, we tell God, take a piece of my life. It's the part that I don't really want anyway. But if we come to God as sinners in need of salvation, we come to God with a confession that says, you have to take it all. You have to take every ounce of my pride and my will and my desire because I'm going to admit all of it's kind of twisted in a way that doesn't belong. And when you offer it all, you find you get everything. And the parable of the lost son, Richard preached on it uh, like three weeks ago. Um, the, the end of the story is such a, a, a beautiful moment. The, the father runs to get the prodigal as, as, as the prodigal coming home. And the father doesn't allow the prodigal to, to finish his little confession story that he's been practicing as he gets closer, but rather takes him into the house. He's not going to be a slave. He's going to live in the house and he places on this wayward son a robe and a ring and he kills a fatted calf to celebrate. And the robe and the ring and the fatted calf, they don't cost the younger son anything because they don't belong to him. They belonged to the older son because everything the father had at that point was his. It's the older son who pays for it. And the same is true for us. A drachma would feed you for one day. It's enough to keep you going. It's enough to give you enough time and enough food and enough sustenance to get up the next morning so that you could work again. And that's all it was. It was subsistence living that meant that as long as you worked hard, as long as you, you kept showing up, as long as you didn't get sick or have an injury, you could still survive. And I wonder in my heart of hearts if some of us have settled for that kind of life spiritually. When God is ready to give us everything. If you give yourself to the king of heaven truly and totally and completely God has promises. God will make you a new creation. God will transform your heart. God will call you a son or a daughter of God. God will give you an inheritance that you cannot comprehend. God will set your heart and your mind to seek the first, the kingdom of God, and to spend your life fighting battles that are worthy of the calling you have received. And to me, it's that last one that means the most to me. Is because it'll finally orient my heart to spend my effort doing the thing that God has wanted in this world. And when that happens to you, that is when you're truly a part of God's kingdom. But it'll cost you everything. So we should ask the question, is that an exploitive cost? Is this God taking advantage of you, God taking advantage of sinners. No, it's not exploitation. It's a bargain. How much did your baptism cost you? Tim Keller notes that it doesn't say, the text doesn't say they sacrificed and they got joy. That's not what the text says. Tim points out, it says they received joy and then they sacrificed. God is not looking to exploit the little treasure you have. God is calling you to experience the joy of being part of the kingdom. To orient your life to what God is doing in this world. And then what you're going to find is that giving up those parts of your life that you never really wanted anyway, they're not going to cost you anything at all. Will you please stand for our benediction? Our prayer team is going to come forward now. They're going to be available to you. If, if you would like to pray with our team, one of our elders, uh, they would love to find you after this service. Is there something on your heart that you need to talk to? They would love to have a conversation now or maybe um, a cup of coffee later this week. Whatever it is, they're available for you. Highland, maybe you never grow weary of seeking God's kingdom for it is a treasure. May you never grow weary of of sloughing off the tarnished Trotskys that give you no peace. May you instead find joy. Joy in the seeking and joy in the finding and joy in possessing that which is the greatest worth of all. Highland, may you go in peace and I'll see you in a month.